Good afternoon, everyone. Um, let me invite you to uh, the, uh, the panel on civic culture uh, and universities. Uh, I'm Stephen Haber. I'm a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as a professor of political science and of history by courtesy of economics. I have the distinct pleasure this afternoon to moderate uh, a panel that includes four people I uh, deeply admire. So let me briefly introduce them uh, to you and then uh, pose some questions to them. Um, and um, uh, we'll have a discussion, but I also want to leave plenty of time given the importance of this topic. And I, uh, I know uh, it's a topic about which many people in this audience uh, have uh, serious concerns about. Uh, so we'll leave plenty of time for uh, discussion and questions and the answer uh, from the audience. Um, on my far right um, is Anna Jumawa Busa. Um, you notice she nodded at me because I almost always mispronounce her name. Um, and students, in fact, call her Anna GB because, uh, anyway, Anna Jumawa Busa, um, <laughs> who is the Michelle and Kevin Douglas Professor of International Studies in the Department of Political Science at Stanford University and a senior fellow by courtesy at the Hoover Institution. Anna's research focuses on religion and politics, authoritarian political parties and their successors, the historical development of the state. She serves as director of the Europe Center and senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute. She has received Carnegie and Guggenheim fellowships. And I will add a footnote to this, as she has been my partner in crime uh, within Stanford University, pushing back on, um, dare I say, uh, policies and regulations that have infringed uh, academic freedom and freedom of expression by the faculty and students. And so, thank you. Um, to uh, her um, left is Jonathan Holloway, who became the 21st president of Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey, uh, he, a post he assumed in 2020. He previously served as provost of Northwestern University and Dean of Yale College. Jonathan's scholarship is centered on post-emancipation U.S. history with a focus on social and intellectual history. He also, I don't know how you have time to do this as a university president, but my hat off to you, he teaches a first year course called Citizenship, Institutions, and the Public for the Burns Seminar Program at Rutgers. Uh, to his left is uh, Josiah Ober, uh, known affectionately to his friends as Josh, uh, especially uh, those who share his taste in scotch, uh, who is the Marcos and Elini Kunalakis Chair in honor of Konstantin Mitsotakis. He's professor of political science and classics who has recently become, I'm thrilled to say, a senior fellow of the Hoover Institution. Josh is the faculty director of the Stanford Civics Initiative and played an instrumental role in developing Stanford's new first year course on citizenship in the 21st century, a topic of which I hope we'll have some time to talk about. His latest book, The Civic Bargain, How Democracy Survives, co-authored with Brooke Manville, serves as a guide for democratic renewal, calling on citizens to recommit to, quote, a civic bargain with one another to guarantee civic rights of freedom, equality, and dignity. Uh, finally, to my immediate right, is Keith Whittington, 
who is a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University. Keith is a scholar of American politics and public law. In his recent book, Speak Freely, Why Universities Must Defend Free Speech, won the Prose Award for Best Book in Education and a Heterodox Academy Award for Exceptional Scholarship. Keith is the founding chair of the Academic Committee of the Academic Freedom Alliance and will be joining the faculty of the Yale Law School in 2024. Let me just then jump in, throw a question out, um, and um, uh, we'll see where, how good things happen as smart people uh, interact. Um, so trust in higher education within the US has plummeted in recent years. No longer do a majority of independents or Republicans have a good deal of confidence in higher education. And even among Democrats, confidence has declined notably. So, so first question, what do you think are the causes of this decline? And how does it relate to the challenges you see on campus? We so chatted a bit beforehand and Josh over generously agreed to get us started on, the, on an answer to this question. So Josh, the floor is yours. All right, thank you very much, Steve. And I just want to thank um, uh, all of the organizers, um, uh, Brandis. Um, it's really a great thing um, to be able to talk about this topic uh, here today. So I think um, this is a complicated story, um, but I see a few uh, key things happening. If you think about the middle um, uh, decades of the 20th century, university education, especially in state universities, was quite affordable. And universities still thought that a, a, an important part of what they did was offering education for citizens, one way and another. Um, we had at uh, Stanford uh, a program called Problems in Citizenship um, in the earlier part of the 20th century that was replaced by a um, program in Western Civilization and, and so on. Um, by the later uh, 20th century, um, attending college became much more expensive, um, although also much more um, uh, common. Um, uh, and at the same time, universities gave up uh, on civic education um, pretty much entirely. I think there's reasons for that. Um, the rise of identity politics was part of it, um, uh, made citizenship courses of any sort more fraught um, uh, and therefore um, risk-averse faculty and administrators were less willing to offer them. Um, uh, so uh, meanwhile, by the last decade of the 21st century, or the 20th century rather, um, the end of history narrative um, had made civic education seem kind of quaint. Um, why bother? Um, liberal democracy is the wave of the future. There is nothing else. We don't need to teach people citizenship. It's just going to simply happen. Um, uh, and so uh, uh, universities could uh, once again abandon um, uh, education for citizens. And 
uh, as a result, uh, ultimately, the university just is reduced to a very high cost and often not very effective training for jobs that sometimes don't eventuate. Um, uh, and uh, uh, this ultimately undercuts, I think, the university's value proposition. Um, you add in then very high profile <laughs> incidents um, of students and faculty, let's just say acting out in ways that most Americans find offensive. That is, um, uh, not only um, uh, are they not engaging in civic education, um, uh, but they're um, uh, engaging in education in incivility. Um, and uh, given the background conditions, the collapse in trust um, in the higher education as an institution um, uh, seems, at least to me, fairly explicable. Um, it, I'll just add on Please. a few thoughts. It's, it's actually great and very surreal to be, to be here. I was an undergrad here, and to, for 20-year-old Jonathan to even imagine this would be laughable. Um, uh, this, not this, sorry. <laughs> um, but the, um, thinking about the, the question specifically, there's so many different dynamics going on, and this, this one question could take up all of our time, frankly. I'll be very brief about it. I agree every, with everything that Josh um, presented. I want to add a few layers and caveats to it. Uh, universities are supposed to move slowly. Ideas take time. Now, uh, different parts of the university are designed to move more quickly than others. We know that. But broadly speaking, we move slowly. We deliberate. We ponder. We get things wrong. We sort of figure them out. A place like Stanford is like a super tanker. You change decision, but it's going to take a very long time to actually feel the change in direction. Um, so that's just a, a, a pretty standard fact. I think we can all, that seems familiar, if we don't all agree with it at least. But we are living in an age that is increasingly impatient, facilitated by technology. I say facilitated in a very loaded way, I must say. And so we now have, and we all know that students expect things done right away. Faculty want to take longer. Administrators <coughs> just drag their feet, I mean, to continue these different stereotypes. But students can now expect things. They can share their opinions and voices in the blink of an eye. And administrators are not trained to do that. Technologically, we're not trained. And we shouldn't be responding that quickly, because we make errors in that way. So you take these two very different kinds of moving extremes. And because I think higher ed, and I'll say myself, weave myself into being part of the guilty party, we have done a poor job of explaining we move slowly for a very principled reason. Uh, we want to get it right. We want to, we want to take very, very old ideas and take time to explain them to 18 and 19 year olds. And it's hard to do so because they're really complicated ideas. And uh, the 18 and 19 year old, I'm oversimplifying for effect, of course, um, will just discard us for discard the, 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 the request to be patient because everything must be done yesterday. You take that phenomenon at a major state university, you take the disinvestment from, from states in the higher education model and the expectation we must still deliver a high quality education at a cut rate price. You take all these dynamics, and I'm cutting out many other things I can talk about, and it, it becomes fundamentally unstable. And uh, the American public is not good at dealing with things that are unstable. Give the public one or two or three simple ideas. I think they can't handle complexity, but at the level of a university's complexity, we don't do a good job of making our story digestible. And therefore, and one of the results is a declining investment. Like, it's too hard to understand. 
and why should we pay $50,000 a year? By the way, not many people actually pay that. But why should we pay $50,000 a year for something I don't understand? And then last thing I'll say, and I'll be quiet, is that going to the point about jobs that may or may not eventually, uh, education that may or may not eventuate into jobs, things are speeding up so quickly, we don't know what jobs we're training for. Mm -hmm. They don't exist yet. I mean, I'm on a board of a tech company dealing with academic um, integrity, uh, Turnitin, and ChatGPT, OpenAI ChatGPT was something a year ago, literally, was saying two to three years we gotta deal with it. ChatGPT drop, three dropped two weeks later and turned everything upside down. The speed of change is outstripping our ability to accommodate it, process it, deliberate it, and digest it into a simple idea. And I'm, I'm very nervous about the consequences. So I wonder if I can build, oh, Keith, go ahead. Yeah. I mean to cut you Sorry, off. I just wanted briefly, I mean, both I, I, I endorse all this, but I, I want to pick up on a point that Josh made at the end of what he was noting, uh, which is one of the striking things about the loss of confidence in universities um, is that, especially among uh, conservative Americans, Republican-leaning uh, Americans, uh, there's just a crash of confidence that occurs quite recently. Um, so if you went back 10 years ago, you would not have seen that same kind of partisan divide. Um, but over the last uh, five years or so ago, um, Republicans in particular have dramatically lost confidence uh, in American universities. I think partially it is a function of the fact um, that they see people on university campuses acting out, as you characterized it, in ways they had not before. I think partially the rise of social media and all the implications of that have changed the dynamic about how uh, Americans uh, understand what's happening on university campuses because they see it differently uh, than they previously did. But it's also true that the campus has uh, grown uh, dramatically leftward um, over time. Campuses have always leaned uh, to left to some degree, but I think all the data suggests um, that over the last 20 years or so, uh, the university faculty have uh, migrated dramatically more leftward uh, than they had been before. Uh, campus administrators uh, have gravitated far more leftward and become much more prominent uh, than they were before. I think it's gonna be hard to recover um, a lot of uh, conservative uh, American trust um, in higher education, uh, given that reality and given how they're being exposed to it. There's a lot of uh, ecosystem of media watch of university watchdogs and others who have a lot of interest in bringing to uh, especially conservatives' attention um, every bad thing that happens um, on university campuses, and it's going to be hard to counter that. I think ultimately, when no matter what we say about the value of what we're contributing um, on university campuses, there's going to be others who have an incentive to say, "Yeah, they say that, but let me show you the most ridiculous, uh, crazy thing uh, that's occurring on campus and tell you then that's representative of everything that's happening." Thing, um, across American higher education as a whole. So let me sort of build on sort of a theme that sort of emerged, uh, which is this sort of an underlying idea that there's a purpose to, uh, to American higher education and ask, okay, so what is the purpose and what does it have to do with civic culture? Because we're dancing around, okay, so what's the purpose? Anna, I'm t am I picking up that you, you, that was a yes, I'll go there? <laughs> no, I'm staring in fear. Um, um. <laughs> no, I think you know, it's, it's very simple, right? Our role is to produce and disseminate knowledge. That's our lane, that's where we should be sticking. Um, and it's to model debate that, and dis you know, resolving disagreement that's based on logic and evidence, not appeals to authority or identity or anything else. And I think this you know, gets back to what we were talking about just a few minutes ago. That's part of the reason why there's this loss of trust. Um, a lot of institutions are losing trust, but for universities, I think it's because we're not staying in our lane and we engage in all kinds of auxiliary activities that aren't seen as core to that mission. 
I would just add that um, I think that universities, at least traditionally, and I think um, a lot of people, myself, I assume a lot of parents still expect, um, that their um, students are going to be getting something um, uh, besides, as it were, effective job training. Um, and they'll be doing something um, uh, that helps them not only to enter the job market four years down or where, whenever it is, um, but also to live better lives, um, to live better lives as individuals and to live better lives as members of their communities. Um, and if they're not getting that, once again, I think that is seen as a loss, is seen as something that's, that, that's missing. If I could jump in there, and I would have absolutely agreed with you until I went to Rutgers. I mean, having <laughs> been at elite private universities for my academic career, that sensibility, totally understand it. But at a place like <coughs> Rutgers University, which represents more of higher ed than the, than the Ivy Plus does, um, which is the place I called home, uh, you know, 40% of our students are first generation or low income, and it's overlapping, but that, that's close enough. So the notion of um, what is college worth is really about return on investment in a way that is, was new to me, I must confess, when I started. And, you're, and um, I've never been at a university until now where there's a, a, school, a, a department of criminology that's actually playing a very important role. I've not been in a school before that is, has majors in accounting, also a very important role and doing all the what I'll call high-level research one activities. So one of the things we need to really think about when we're having these conversations about universities is which universities, what types of universities, because the, the um, Ivy Plus represent a very small percentage, but they carry the cultural weight of, of the industry. And that leads to some um, uh, things that are a little un out of balance. This is not really a critique, I, like I said, until three years ago, everything you said made complete sense. I'm just adding a layer of complexity to it, and I think that's one of the challenges, is that a very small percentage of the American, of people who go to higher ed, go into higher ed, are going to be attending highly selective universities, private or public. Most aren't. They're gonna be in places where there's a much broader general education, and it is about how can you add to the family coffer to keep the roof over the head. And so there's a, a way in which higher ed does not talk directly to that population, in, in a way that I think is effective. Um, and I've been absolutely guilty of that myself. And I've been learning as a going that there's a, we need to develop more robust ways to bring everybody into the conversation. Not easy. Can, can I Keith, just? Uh, uh, let me get like, Keith uh, in and then Josh yeah. you respond. But I want to give Keith. Yeah, I just say as a product of the University of Texas, I, I fully appreciate uh, the difference that exists between, um, I think, places like where I'm currently teaching at Princeton and places where I came from. Uh, like the University of Texas. I was in the business school as a major there. It's certainly part of what, the significant reason why I went to college was precisely in order to um, establish a more successful middle class life. Um, and so that value proposition of why you're going in part is precisely prepare students uh, for a capacity to have um, a better economic position uh, down, down the road. It's, and it's certainly true, I think not only is that an important aspect of what universities do um, in American society uh, more broadly, um, but it's also uh, something that I think is easily ignored in our cultural conversation about universities. It is certainly true, I think that the Ivy League schools and the like um, are the ones that carry a lot more cultural weight in terms of how people think about higher education. People don't notice as much uh, what's happening um, on the vast swath of university campuses. Um, and often the story there, I think, would be more appealing to most Americans uh, than the story 
story that they see in the news uh, about what's happening at the most elite um, institutions because a lot of the uh, state universities across the country, um, uh, things are progressing in a somewhat more uh, stable and secure way. Uh, there's less acting out um, in this fashion. They see more first generation students and others um, who are simply going to classes and, and uh, learning um, and getting things done. And I think uh, partially higher education as an industry needs to think more about how do we spotlight um, those success stories um, and those features of higher education uh, and take some of the attention off of uh, these most visible political conflicts uh, that we're sometimes seeing um, on some of the most elite uh, but also smallest campuses. So just my uh, grace note on this is uh, uh, my uh, undergraduate uh, education was University of Minnesota, so like Texas, and then I uh, went to graduate school at Michigan and taught then for 10 years at Montana State University. Um, uh, and certainly a lot of what Jonathan's talking about is, is true, but it wasn't true all the way down. Um, I mean, the idea was it wasn't just that you were there um, for mm -hmm. job training. Um, I remember uh, one of my students at Montana State um, who had taken not only my basic Western Civ class, but then um, a, a more advanced class with me. And I knew what the guy was from a ranch. Um, he was going to be going back to the ranch. Um, uh, I said, why, why are you taking this? And he said, well, my dad, and you have to do this with a proper Montana accent, which means you had back in the day a sort of a plug of tobacco <laughs> that you were talking about, literally. And this was absolutely, absolutely true. Um, uh, anyway, he said, my dad uh, said, well, son, um, you go up there uh, to the university, and you're going to take those ag classes, and you've got to do that. You've got to know how to run the ranch. I mean, it's a, it's a business. Uh, he said, but son, you've got to take some other stuff, too, because if you're spending all uh, winter up here on the ranch and all you can read is a seed catalog, you're going to go nuts. <laughs> and so I thought that sort of encapsulated something. There's supposed to be something else. And um, at least that father of that son, I think maybe that is still there in at least some of our uh, some of oh, our. It absolutely is. I was just yeah. adding another, <laughs> absolutely. another layer to it. I wonder if I, as moderator I could sort of uh, push us a bit on this. Um, so and I'll have to review a little bit of since Josh has talked about uh, personal history, I'll talk about a little mine. So I was uh, what is now referred to as a low-income first-generation student. Uh, back when I went to college, I was just known as poor. Um, <laughs> and um, I remember this remarkable moment sitting in the person who became my advisor's office. We're, we're still in contact to this day. Given all my gray hair, you can imagine how elderly uh, he is, but we still have dinner twice a year. And I remember just being blown away by the fact that his job was that he read books, and then he talked to me about them. And he would give me stacks of books to read, and um, I would go read them, and I'd come back, and we would talk about what parts of the books held water, that is, what stood up to evidence and reason, and what didn't. And it was in that interaction I realized, wow, there is this important role for universities um, to teach students how to separate out claims that are demonstrably false from those that well, may be true. And so um, one of the things that strikes me, and it started with Anna's present, you know, when she talks about staying in her lane, doing research, disseminating. Um, and then faculty doing other things, and the other things undefined. Um, have we 
as, as, as faculty, gotten away from the truth business? Is that part of the problem? And teaching students that that's why we're here? And I, I will, I'm going to go a little further. I remember engaging our provost, our past provost, a couple years ago on this. And she said, well, I want all students to be activists. And I said, no, I think that's wrong. We should have, want all students to be scientists. Um, so I want, have we, I want to put this on us. Have we abdicated our job of being in the truth business? That is, is the problem, part of the problem, the faculty. I don't think we have. I think you know, nearly every faculty member I know profoundly cares about both research and pedagogy. I mean, that's, that's why we're here. Um, I think the pressure comes from other places, right? I mean, I think there's new, new disciplines with very different standards for what constitutes knowledge. Um, I think something we haven't talked about is the corporatization of the university and the way in which you know, there's kind of a wholesale importation of high-level administrators from the corporate world who impose speech codes apply the wrong kinds of standards to policing events, who want to eliminate risk at every possibility. Um, and that also sort of you know, creates a very different atmosphere for the sort of pursuit of knowledge and people sort of you know, holding back and not saying things when maybe they should. And I don't mean to suggest that you know, as citizens, of course we should, we should engage in whatever political activists and free speech we want to. Um, I just don't think that you know, there's, a sort of, there's a, a line to walk here where as researchers and as pedagogues, that's not what we should be transmitting in the classroom. But again, I just don't think that you know, most faculty, I mean, everyone I know profoundly cares about truth um, and wants to do the best job they can to teach students how to think, not what to think. But I think you know, there are pressures that come from elsewhere that might be responsible. If, if I could build on that, I, I do agree. The, um, I had this the special, um, I have two email inboxes. Most, I don't think, I think every university president, president does, the president's one and the private one. I don't know how to access the president's one, and by design, because I can't send a message by design. By design, I cannot send a message to the community. We all hear these stories of, in a fit of passion, you say something, and that's a former president. Um, but on, on Saturday, I was enjoying a quiet day, such as they are, and then got a couple of alerts, and then uh, one of my executive assistants says, we'll talk about this on Monday. Like, that's not good. She was trying to preserve me for the weekend. What happened on Saturday, Saturday was 8,000 emails came into the president's inbox. It's now over 10,000. In fact, I've been sitting in the back, because they now have my personal email address, not fun, and I've been moving things out. And, it is, and this goes to the issues of truth or, or speech codes. They are all about, and it's copy and paste. So I've really received one email, um, but it's copy and paste about uh, uh, a seminar that had been planned at least nine months ago, the last session of which features some scholars. Um, I would call at least one of them a provocateur, but that's part of the dynamics of a university faculty, but um, uh, on Palestine liberation struggles. <coughs> the number of email, well, I told you, 10,000 emails telling me to cancel it. Now, of course, that's violation of academic norms, freedom of expression, it's also bad administrating. Um, because if I were to cancel it, it'd become the news you would all know about. It's the last thing I want to do. Even if I found the ideas repugnant, I would not be canceling these things. Uh, the irony is that at my freshman convocation this year, I told the 8,000 freshmen at, in our New Brunswick campus in a speech called Listening, it was about academic freedom. Like, we are really good at talking in this country. We are horrible at listening in this country. 
And we need to do both. And the university is there to teach us how to listen and judge, make decisions, weigh evidence, dealing with truth, seeking it. And boy, have we gotten bad at that. Um, and the we is society. And the expectations facilitated by cut and paste activism is that in this case, a president can actually shut everything down. A president should not be shutting everything down. And this is the, the, the whole point of our exercise. So let me sort of pursue this a minute and, 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 and sort of um, drill down a bit into what uh, we do as faculty. Um, and that has to do with you know, the, the place where we most commonly come into contact with students, which is in, a, in the classroom. Um, so what are, in your views, the biggest challenges within the classroom and connected to that? What are the biggest challenges in curriculum and what should we do about it? Well, I would say that the biggest challenge, I think, that we're all facing um, uh, is uh, really um, enabling and advancing really serious discussion among students um, who have different points of view um, uh, and doing so in a way that is civil and respectful. Um, I take it that's essential to the advancing the search for truth. Mm -hmm. um, it's essential for whatever sort of liberal education we imagine that we're, we're giving them. Uh, and it is, uh, it is genuinely, it's genuinely difficult. I think it is possible um, to develop new curricula um, uh, that do in fact do this. Um, at Stanford, uh, we have um, successfully inaugurated um, a program, uh, a new um, three-quarter um, freshman sequence, uh, now taken by all freshmen. They currently need to take two of the three. Soon they'll be taking three of the three quarters. Um, the first one is called Why College? What are you doing here? besides becoming a good computer programmer, which of course at Stanford is what you're doing. Um, the second one uh, is the one I've spent most time and energy on that may be most um, uh, salient to this conversation. Um, it's called Citizenship in the 21st Century, um, in which we try to introduce them to the idea that being a democratic citizen or being a citizen in a democratic country um, is not an easy thing. Um, it entails both rights, um, but also responsibilities. Um, uh, it's difficult because collective action is difficult without somebody giving you orders. Um, and a democratic society assumes that in the end, there isn't any final boss um, uh, giving you orders. We found that it actually can be done. Um, uh, I was very excited to basically get this thing going. I worried that in the end, because it is now a mandatory course um, or part of a mandatory sequence, that students would hate it. Um, uh, at least our preliminary uh, results is they don't. Um, they're giving it high marks. Um, so what we're now trying to do is find out ways to um, develop a series of more advanced courses so that students who begin to care about being an effective member of a community, um, being a citizen, can take uh, uh, courses that would be laddered through the rest of their um, years um, uh, here at Stanford, um, perhaps get a certificate of some sort at the end, effective citizenship. Um, uh, and uh, uh, in the meanwhile, trying to um, have conversations with people at other universities, um, especially public universities, because after all, we are, you know, uh, 
small and elite um, operation here. We have to um, expand this out, trying to think about ways in which we might, um, uh, at a national level, have a sort of general set of principles that could be widely accepted by faculty, not imposed by from above, but widely accepted by faculty, and yet would allow a great deal of flexibility um, between states, between regions, between um, uh, uh, college and university types um, uh, to deliver uh, education for citizens in ways that were locally appropriate, uh, and yet somehow have some um, umbrella uh, conception of, yes, we're doing something in common. Um, so I think it, it is possible, it's difficult. Um, I think it's the most difficult thing uh, at the moment, but also um, the most important thing uh, we can be doing um, uh, as university um, faculty and, and administrators. Anna. I think, you know, it's also, we get trained in uh, human subjects rules and in sexual harassment and in financial responsibility. I think it would be great if we could be trained to conduct and facilitate difficult conversations. Because as the student body gets more diverse and has such different viewpoints, sometimes it's hard to manage those conversations in a way that you know, still stays within the boundaries of civil exchanges. Um, and I think the other thing I would say is that you know, for the students, what I keep finding is that there's a, such a loss of trust. They've sort of lost faith in the faculty being able to conduct these conversations, and they've lost faith in each other um, and so it's very hard for them to, to have these tough conversations without sort of the fear of recrimination or repercussions or having their name you know, pasted all over uh, TikTok in the next few, you know, few hours. So it's, I think, you know, it, both the faculty and the students, I think, um, have a job ahead of them. So I, I want to build on this, if I could, for, for a second, um, because there is a problem of loss of trust. That, uh, and, um, but it goes two ways. So, you know, we're all sort of quite senior people. Um, and so we're, you know, university administrators tangle with uh, gray-haired faculty of a certain standing at their own peril, um, especially those who have lawyers on speed dial. <laughs> um, but for younger faculty, there's a real fear, and it's a fear of the students, because uh, the basics the, the, the economics of our industry is that you get ahead by having other universities seek you out, offer you better conditions than you. So you may not know this, but when you start as an assistant professor at Stanford, you get a dollar and all the brown rice you can eat. And uh, as a former dean, I can tell you this, uh, the only way that you, you, know, you, you, you get to move out of a garage is that you know, University of Chicago calls you up one day and says, oh, we're gonna triple your salary. Um, and their fear is that if there are complaints about them and they're investigated by their own universities, that this is going to kill any hope of ever moving out of the garage. Um, so the, there's a problem going in both directions. So I guess my first question is, is, am I diagnosing this part of the problem correctly, that there's now fear on both sides? Uh, and if so, what do we do about that? Well, I, I, I see where you're going. I do think more junior faculty are a bit more tuned into all the dynamics of a changing demog demographically changing undergraduate population. And so are a little more depth with technology, a little, and therefore maybe more aware of what can, the bad sides of it. But I, my, my experience has been that they've been much more willing to um, 
do the training or, or suggest, hey, we should, we should do new, new kinds of training because we just have this whole different population. We want to learn, get the skills. But it's the classic challenge of the faculty who need it most are the ones that, I mean, this is just endemic, right? Are the ones who just aren't going to do it. So I think there's, I just want to, there's that to it also. But the, the social media thing, it, it really is, it, 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 it is breaking so, I mean, it can do a, a wonderful, transformative, powerful, and affirmative things, yes. But my goodness, most of it I find really quite toxic and quite destructive. Mm -hmm. destructive. And Josh, in his book, wrote, um, most recent book, I'm, I'm boosting you, um, <laughs> this beautiful <laughs> phrase about civic friendship. And that really stuck with me. And it, it's, a, it's an amorphous concept. I mean, I feel like I got it right away because I'm of a certain generation where it just made sense to me. Mm -hmm. I really worry about the tangibility of something like civic friendship, uh, which means we may really disagree with each other. We may not like the thing you said, but we actually <laughs> recognize we have something in common. That's a really hard thing to do today when everything is particularized algorithmically to what you represent in bits and bots. So, I, so part of what you uh, suggest about sort of the fear that some faculty are living in in our current environment and as a consequence of the ways in which it affects people's teaching, um, I've certainly encountered a lot of that uh, with the work I've done with the Academic Freedom Alliance over the last few years. Uh, one thing I've been very struck by in that regard um, is uh, I have not found that senior faculty are not so concerned about it because they have tenure protections, they have lawyers on speed dial and the like. Um, instead, I find a tremendous number of senior faculty who feel like they're walking on eggshells and don't find uh, teaching in a university fun in the way that it once was, uh, precisely because they're afraid of their own students, um, afraid that they'll say something wrong, that students will weaponize something that they've said, um, and moreover, there is now a campus bureaucracy uh, of administrators um, who are designed to uh, respond to those kind of student complaints uh, in order to investigate and discipline uh, faculty um, and often have a completely different sensibility about the nature of academic freedom and what faculty ought to be doing um, in the classroom. Um, younger faculty certainly fear, <laughs> feel that as well, um, but, but I don't think it's just the case that only the youngest of faculty feel it. It's also worth bearing in mind, of course, that there's an extraordinary uh, number of contingent faculty out there um, who are working working class by class, semester by semester, um, who don't enjoy tenure protections at all, or not worried about, uh, do I get the call from the University of Chicago and can increase mm -hmm. my salary, but instead concerned about, will I be allowed to teach again next semester? Um, and, and those people are extraordinarily vulnerable um, to these kinds um, of complaints, and often uh, will get not only yanked out of the classroom, but fired in the middle of a semester um, if students are complaining about them uh, to administrators. And unfortunately, some of these state legislatures, such as Florida, or thinking from a conservative direction, uh, not just pushing back against that, but adding a whole new layer um, of bureaucracy, surveillance, um, and potential discipline um, of faculty uh, from a different perspective about what kinds of concerns about what they're teaching. But it makes the environment of teaching in a classroom extraordinarily toxic. And I think there's a tremendous number of university faculty that are uh, pretty depressed about what the current situation looks like as a consequence. Anna, you want to jump in? I just wanted to, um, first of all, underscore very much you know, the precarity of contingent faculty, and they're far, far, far more vulnerable than any faculty member, tenure or untenured at a university is. So very much want to underscore that. The second thing is that you know, when we talk about these bureaucrats who come in and you know, start investigating, a lot of them have no sort of training in what academic freedom or free speech is. They're not academics. This is not faculty governance. They're you know, imported from jobs in the corporate world. and so. Their sort of natural reaction is to eliminate harm, and that means sort of you know, going after any accusation and pursuing it to the full. 
um, rather than thinking about it in terms of academic freedom or sort of, you know, people making mistakes and being allowed to apologize and move on. Um, and so again, you know, I think this is sort of a plea for more faculty governance and less mm -hmm. corporate rules. It, yeah. it, I want to move on, but I, one thing I, I think important for the audience to understand is that this problem is so large that, uh, so we, my staff and I did a study on how common these sort of, uh, um, sort of websites that universities have created for students to inform on each other and inform on faculty are. So we did a study of the top 100 ranked universities in the United States. 84% have systems to report on other students or on faculty for something that they might have said. These are not, I want to underline, these are not judicial because something that is illegal cannot go through these systems, right? So we're not talking about um, sexual harassment, we're not talking about uh, cr criminal activity, we're just talking about things that make people f feel harmed, and I want to underline feel harmed, uh, mostly speech. And then amazingly, 82% of those 84 allow the reporting to be anonymous. Let me move on, because you know, one of the places that we all as academics, well, I'm gonna say we all, because I know that Jonathan as a, as a university president has a much bigger portfolio uh, in terms of engaging, uh, engaging students and in the public. Um, but speaking as a faculty member with a lawyer on speed dial, um, I'm, I'm not joking. Um, um, we come into, tend to, faculty tend to come into contact with students in the classroom. But the students actually, that's a small part of the reality of life or the experience of being at college and of everything you should get from, from being at college. And um, there's this whole world beyond the classroom. And so I guess my question is, what do you think are the biggest, what do we think, or individually what we think, we can bounce it off each other, are the biggest challenges outside the classroom in terms of um, what kind of world the students should be uh, experiencing, and what can we do about it? I think Jonathan um, uh, really brought up uh, uh, one of the key things, um, and that is the world of um, <coughs> social media, um, the internet broadly so construed. Uh, and I think one of the uh, worries I have um, uh, is that at least um, when I was uh, a young faculty member, um, there was at least some sense of a buffer between the world and the university, um, between the society out there and what we were doing in here. Obviously, the buffer was never complete. I mean, there was not, not a bright line. Um, but still in all, it wasn't just an immediate response. Um, I think now uh, there is simply no buffer at all. Um, what happened to Jonathan's 10,000 emails happening just boom, overnight. Uh, and it's because of things happening outside the university are suddenly um, reflected by things going on inside the university, a seminar that, um, uh, about the uh, topics that people don't like. Um, uh, and uh, I worry that uh, this is then uh, something that even becomes potentiated uh, within the university so that the hot button issues outside immediately come inside and they get hotter. Um, because the students and faculty by nature um, uh, are in a sense in a kind of a 
hothouse, um, uh, have a certain amount of time to um, respond to things. Um, there's a certain incentive, I think, for student groups, um, uh, uh, perhaps some faculty as well, to um, feel that it would be great to get provocateur on campus because that gets them more play. Um, uh, and the provocateur get more provocative because that gets them more play. And so things begin to build up. And so instead of the university being sort of a space that is at least a little bit outside the world, it becomes a place where the world becomes um, that much hotter, um, uh, more exciting, um, but not in a good way that allows for um, uh, a real dialogue. I think that's true, but I think there's a further wrinkle to it as well. I mean, partially this sort of uh, lack of uh, space between the outside world and the inside world of universities um, helps explain in part the sort of weird phenomenon that we're seeing uh, lately of student protesters on campus being extraordinarily uh, angry when anyone tries to film them uh, engaging in their public protest. Um, and it's precisely because uh, they see that as a threat because it will feed into this larger social media world. And next thing you know, the students are going to be at the receiving end of the 10,000 uh, hateful emails, um, precisely because you have people mobilizing that kind of concern. I have to admit that as a faculty member, um, I assiduously try to avoid anything about student life and, and try to pretend like it didn't exist. Um, but my daughter just recently graduated college, and so uh, I was uh, instantly exposed to it in all its glory. Um, and one of the things I, I was surprised by was not only to the extent to which this factor is true uh, for students today, but also the extent to which internal university communications um, are uh, adding pressure. So immediately upon entering college, she's put on a tremendous number of uh, uh, direct message and text um, uh, list in which she's communicating with all the freshman class, everybody in her dorm, everybody on her wing of the dorm, everybody, <laughs> all the students in the university more generally. Um, and those things are constantly communicating with one another and moreover, constantly reporting on one another. This student said something in this class and not only are you worried about what's gonna happen when that gets exposed to the outside world, but more immediately you're concerned about everyone in my dorm is now going to be informed about this stupid thing I said in class today. Um, so there's, it's impossible to escape and it is uh, extraordinarily poisonous um, uh, for both the academic enterprise of universities, uh, but also makes uh, life very unpleasant, I think, for students as a consequence. I, I just want to, yes, to all of everything you said. Years ago, when I was dean of Yale College, there was a big conflagration on campus. It was bigger off campus than on campus. Um, and alumni came back uh, for a regularly <laughs> scheduled event, and, and the alumni were really worked up about all of the stuff. I'm like, like, I get why you're angry, I understand that, but think about when you were 18 and 19 years old. You all did dumb things. You're supposed to when you're 18 or 19, but you didn't have cameras. And, and so as much as I was frustrated by the way the students were behaving, I also felt empathetic because they're living in a world <coughs> I do. I would never want to go to college with um, self-declared journalists, always, I mean, living in a panopticon, basically. Um, that does damage to a civic culture to the ability, I mean, we should all be able to make mistakes. That's what college is for, so we can actually learn and be better. Um, and I don't know how to get out of it. So it's, it's a very serious lament, but I do want to extend some grace to the people who drive me craziest, I mean, <laughs> on campus, but it not extend the grace to those who are outside here whipping things up. So I think this may be a really good point, because uh, as I felt like the temperature in our group sort of progressively going up over the last <laughs> 45 minutes, and then reading the body language of the audience, 
Uh, I think this would be a really good point for us to open things up uh, and take uh, questions uh, or comments uh, from the audience. So the floor is open. Uh, Ma'am, right here. Thank you all. This probably is the most uh, <coughs> interested topic for me. Um, and the reason is I have four children, uh, two of whom have already graduated from college, and one is applying to college this year. And my concern have been that in college campuses, I mean, there's no longer any academic freedom to freely debate, exchange ideas, or even encourage to think critically. And what I'm hearing from the panelists today is that even among the faculty members, there's fear of exchanging ideas or even interacting with students in a free manner. So, I mean, who's the adult in the room and how do we lead our students, our children, to learn what they're supposed to in the higher institution of education? And I have a second question, which is about corporatizing universities. What is driving it? And in your view, if there was no corporatization uh, and you know, governance by faculty, would that make any difference? Josh? I mean, I, to your <coughs> question of who's the adult in the room, we are. We must be. Um, uh, we, the faculty, must <coughs> be. Um, uh, we, the serious administrators, must <coughs> be. Um, uh, and I think this is a moment when there's a general sense among the faculty I talk with anyway that things have really come to a, a, a point of crisis um, uh, and that it's time to make a difference. Uh, this is what really made possible the creation of the civics initiative that I direct. Um, uh, I got a lot of buy-in from my fellow faculty, from the uh, Stanford administration, because there was a sense that wasn't a partisan thing. This isn't a left-right thing. This was just a general sense that we need to be doing something about it. And so that's why we created um, the citizenship class. Um, that's why we have the initiative to create more advanced classes that are all specifically designed to do exactly this thing, to um, allow for civil, respectful discourse. Um, even in the face of all of the um, uh, headwinds that, that we face. I think that uh, uh, there is a lot of desire um, in the universe, the higher education world, to address this. Um, and I think there is a real chance now to do it. Um, uh, it is a sense of crisis, um, but crisis is, of course, opportunity. Um, and I think this is a point in which uh, we could see a tipping, uh, a tipping point to uh, beginning to address the crisis. Exactly how we're going to do it, you know, that's going to be tricky. That, and that's not going to be one size fits all. Um, uh, but without the will on the part of the faculty, it will not be addressed. And I think that um, there is increasingly the frustration that faculty are feeling about being in this sort of position is creating that kind of beginning to rebuild that backbone um, uh, to say it's time to uh, uh, try to address this and try to uh, spend a lot of the sort of energy and 
truth-seeking, the things that we do um, to aim it at this, at this end to try to, to recapture. So I feel like I'm just uh, Josh's wingman here, always <laughs> saying add a wrinkle. And the wrinkle is, I, 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 agree with, I agree that it has to come from the faculty. People think that presidents run universities. We, we manage. The, the real initiatives really come through the faculty appropriately so. But from the, and this is a bridge to the corporatization element, which I'm <coughs> looking towards you since you, you raised it. But, but the, the, in this case, in this instance, the presidents are, presidents are right in the middle uh, because we are trying to hopefully cultivate a great faculty, not necessarily manage, but cultivate, right? But we are definitely trying to manage boards. And I'll give one quick example. And, and in, a, in an era of hyper-politicization, going back to um, an early, uh, our lunchtime panel about um, primaries and, and how that's leading to um, disaggregation of how we talk to one another, our ability to do so, uh, COVID vaccinations. Um, and this is, okay, I'll, I'll boast that Rutgers was the first university to require student vaccinations. We weren't trying to be, it just, we just were the first one to do so, but of course we leaned into it when that became newsworthy. But my peers, especially at public universities, were reaching out, how did you do it? Other presidents, we know this is the right thing to do, but how did you get it past your board? I'm like, well, I've actually got a supportive board and there's a loophole in, loophole in New Jersey law that allowed us to do it. Um, but what I heard from my peers was, I want to do it, but my board chair says no, <coughs> or my governor says no, or the senator says no. And the president's job is to protect the university, which means staying in the job in these cases. And then the, the external factors, superior factors, governors, legislators, board members, especially at state schools, are saying if you do this, it will remove you and put somebody else in place. And we've seen it happen, um, especially in the free speech area, we, we've seen it happen. Um, and so uh, we presidents are in a, in a very lose, kind of a lose-lose situation on, the, on, on this kind of issue um, from these corporatizing, no-risk environment, board environments to a healthfully volatile learning environment. And we're just in the middle trying to navigate it. Um, I will, one thing I'll just add real quickly and I'll be quiet is that there is freedom of speech on campus and people want to have it, but it is more and more contested. It's just, it's more and more fraught. It is there. If it wasn't there, I wouldn't have 10,000 emails in my inbox, <laughs> um, but it's there. It's just, get, it is getting harder to, um, for people to stand up to do so. And that's where presidents do have an obligation to stand up and say, um, this, this show will go on in the, in the case. Um, I see a hand here, ma'am. I hope this uh, question won't make me sound like the skunk at the garden party, but um, I, I do have to inquire since we all know that most faculty uh, at our universities are on one certain side of the political spectrum. Um, are they going to have the objectivity to be uh, impartial about attempting to improve the speech, free speech opportunities for the very much smaller segment who are on the other side of the political spectrum. And I'm not, I'm not questioning their integrity or their good intentions, but just as a human, uh, 
human beings with certain biases. I, I'm happy to, if, unless you got, Keith, if you want to go, I'm happy to take it. But, I'm, I'm happy to jump in at least. I mean, I think, I, I think there's a lot of support across faculty, across the divide, uh, ideological and political divide on this issue. Um, I, I know there have been a tremendous number of faculty, um, as Josh suggested, who think we're sort of in a crisis point. Uh, they've seen a lot of activity, and that's true um, in, in this broad area, but also in this free speech area in particular. Um, there's a lot of faculty who are very embarrassed by some of the things they've seen um, on university campuses and realize that can't continue. Um, and so I, it's, it's still a struggle as to how do you do it uh, very effectively. There certainly is a uh, component of the faculty I think are quite hostile um, uh, to what I think of as very important principles of free speech um, and academic freedom. Uh, but I think there is still, at the moment at least, um, a, a broad uh, sub-basis of support um, that can be leveraged uh, to make some progress. But I do worry uh, 10, 15 years from now, uh, that might not be so true. If I could. Some, a topic about which I've given some thought and, and comes out of my own experience here at Stanford uh, working in, in large part with Anna. One of the things that's really impressed me about the coalition that has formed to defend academic freedom and freedom of expression is it's a coalition of the center left and the center right. Um, because the greatest threat, the, the faculty members who are most under threat are not people like me. They're my colleagues on the center left who are going to be assaulted by the far left. And so there's been a realization, even though we may disagree about all kinds of things in politics, I think there's been a realization that um, the university is something we love. We gave our, devoted our professional lives to something and we're watching it be destroyed. And um, there's therefore a coalition of both what I'd call the sane left and the sane right that has come together because one of the great things about the United States is it's built on markets and there's a market for sanity. <laughs> um, and that, that the, the supply curve sort of to meet that market it has been emerging um, from, a, it's a coalition that you wouldn't have imagined let's say 10 years ago the other thing that's happening that gives me hope is that because, you know, it's now become a generalized understanding, I think, in the society that something's deeply wrong. Parents are actively looking for alternatives to where their children can go, where they can actually receive an education. And there are university leaderships that have emerged that see a market opportunity. So one of my favorite examples of this is Vanderbilt with Daniel Deermeyer as president. Uh, another is uh, Chapman University, where they realize there's a market opportunity for us. It's not happening, let's say, in the Ivy Pluses, um, because they're, they're the big incumbents, but the sort of disruption in this market has been coming, let's say, at the, the next tier down, where they say, well, there's an opportunity for us to catapult ourselves into, a into the top tier um, by appealing to the market for um, sensibleness, we'll put it that way. We probably have time for a more questions. Uh, Miss here. And I apologize if we will not get to everybody. Hi, my question is um, faculty have beliefs, you know, 
they're people, they have their own beliefs. Do you think it's better for them to be upfront with students and say, this is what I believe, or this is my <clears throat> political affiliation? Or do you think it's better for them to try to remain neutral and, and not let students know what their political affiliation is? And um, yeah, what should they do about that in classes? I think it depends on the topic. I prefer they <coughs> keep their private life private, frankly, um, and teach material. Uh, you know, I have very strong political opinions. They are irrelevant to my presidency, as far as I'm concerned. Um, sure, they'll guide me, of course, I'm a human, but they're irrelevant. And I would think faculty should operate the same way. But it depends on what you're teaching. <laughs> there are some times where that's gonna be, that, that's gonna be a very, you're gonna get into gray area, some topics. Um, but I, and I, but I, I think a great teaching model is like Socratic method, devil's advocate. Keep them guessing. Because the point is you want to get them, you want to hear their ideas in, in this way, form them. You want to help the students form their ideas. I'm not saying that very well. But uh, not push your ideas from an ideological perspective down. I think that uh, one way to think about this is that um, uh, today um, diversity is one of the big terms that um, every university embraces. Um, uh, but uh, what's sort of fallen out of the idea of diversity um, is something that I think no good-hearted, decent faculty member <coughs> would reject, and that is the importance of diversity of viewpoint. Um, so that to the extent to which um, uh, a faculty member um, who's teaching any kind of controversial material um, uh, uh, offers only his or her own viewpoint, um, uh, that faculty member is really violating um, the implicit contract um, uh, between teacher and, and student. Uh, and so that offering a, a diversity of viewpoint and for a university to offer a courses um, which um, have a overall um, uh, a view, diversity of viewpoints seems to me to be something that it's very hard to make an intellectual argument against. I've, I've never heard anybody come up and actually make the argument that my right way of thinking should be the only way to be, I mean, I'm sure that it has happened. <laughs> I know, um, I'll, I'll arrange a drink. <laughs> but, it's a, but it's something that can't really be presented um, uh, in any kind of really um, sustained and reasonable argument uh, kind of context. Yeah, that I'll concede. <laughs> I, I, I am mindful of the time, and I realize there are many hands, and I'm going to apologize uh, that we, can't we don't have time for all the questions, but we do have a break, and, and I hope that uh, many of us can continue this informally uh, over the break, but uh, I am uh, mindful that there's uh, more to come today. Uh, and that we are uh, already running uh, behind. So let me thank my colleagues. Um, and let me, let me also close um, by thanking Brandis Keynes Roan uh, and Condi Rice, uh, both for the American Institutions Initiative, but, but also for this panel, the American Institutions Initiative. Uh, I dare say this is not a panel that would take place at many places in higher education I know. And I am, it, we're close to Thanksgiving, so let me say <laughs> thank you to Brandis and thank you to Condi for creating the kind of environment uh, in which we could have with you all this kind of discussion about the real challenges to civic culture and higher education. Thank you all very much. Mm -hmm.